What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Today's episode was brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code SMART at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks for joining us today. Got a great episode for you. We are interviewing Todd Cashden. Todd is a professor at George Mason University. He has his PhD in clinical psychology, and he's published over 150 peer-reviewed journal articles on how to foster and sustain happiness and meaning in life, as well as other topics such as strength use and development, stress and anxiety, mindfulness, gratitude, social relationships, and self-regulation. Todd is really well known in the positive psychology space. He authored a book called Curious, Discover the Missing Ingredient to a Fulfilling Life, and his most recent book, which we also talk about in this episode, is The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment. 
I was actually introduced to Todd from a friend of mine who is also a listener of the show. So, Doug, thanks for that introduction. This episode, I, I enjoyed it so much. Todd and I really clicked. We hit it off. Actually, hopefully we're going to meet up sometime soon because he lives close to me. And it felt like just a great conversation where I could learn, perhaps throw in a, a few tidbits of information that I know and things I've learned along the way. Um, but definitely a great conversation that I believe will satisfy your curious mind. Thanks for joining us today. Remember, you can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com and on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Give us a shout out over there at Twitter. If you like what you hear, or if you don't, let us know what you think on iTunes. Leave a review and a comment. And as always, don't forget that Amazon banner, smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. All right, going to turn it over to the interview with Todd as we discuss many things dealing with psychology, happiness, optimism, and most importantly, his amazing new book, The Upside of Your Dark Side. Enjoy. Todd, first, I just want to say thanks so much for being on the show. I am I'm really excited to talk to you and uh, really dive into some of my favorite topics. So thanks for being on. Yeah, it's my honor. Thank you. I was mentioning prior to hitting record, and I want to tell the listeners that I realize these interviews are a little difficult for me just because I love this stuff. I love this conversation. I love, you know, we're going to be talking about kind of happiness, but it's it's obviously much more than that. And it almost, I'll let you talk about it, but really, I believe it's authentically being human. You know, it's it's not just happiness. It's much more than that. And learning how our brains really make that happen. And so I just, you know, it's tough. I, I, I need to remove myself a little bit so I can just listen to you talk. Yeah. I, I, happiness is, there's no question that if you're, you know, if you're going to talk to parents, if you're going to talk to people who are just take over the leadership position of an organization, and that can be anything from a little league team to um, a bunch of people that want to talk about, you know, climate change, much less an organization, uh, an actual company is they'll tell you that they want people to be happy. They want people to be happy at those meetings. They want people to be happy under their guidance. They want to have friendly relationships. And I think in the end, I mean, this is kind of what we want. The problem lies when we make happiness the fundamental objective of our lives, as opposed to a byproduct of living in a way where we're whole, we're authentic, we're bringing our strengths, our weaknesses, our values, our resources, and and a skeptical lens to, I'm not going to trust you just because you have a couple of extra letters for a graduate degree mm -hmm. after your name or your position in terms of being working for the CAA or we being the managing director of a firm. And when we make happiness the objective of our life, we make decisions that are off our counter for us living a well-lived life. And so if we train our kids to be happy, well, basically what we're we're implicitly saying is if you feel uncomfortable talking to kids with a different worldview than you, maybe they're religious, you're not, or the other way around, or someone that doesn't look like you, well, forget it. Back off because you have kids in the neighborhood that you're friends with. If you say the goal is for them to be happy, what we're saying is, well, you know what? Don't choose courses that are that don't work for you and are unsatisfying because there's plenty of subjects to choose from. And here's the problem with that. It's very short-sighted. You know, you need math to understand how to be financially savvy when you are at some point independent in your life. Now, that's 
seven steps removed from third grade, but that's the starting block. And you might not like reading, and it might be very painful for kids that are, especially with learning disabilities such as dyslexia, but we know that you are not going to get through life without being able to acquire information efficiently and effectively. So no matter how much you hate it, in the long run, you need it. And if, you know, so what I would suggest is that we, we think about happiness as something that, something that may or may not occur as we pursue the things we care about. But let's definitely not make it the objective of, the objective of our life and why we wake up in the morning. Wow, we dove right in, and there's so many things there. All right, the first one is, this is the topic is so important to me because of the journey I had to go on. Many people know about it. I was probably the happiest person, I don't know, I hung out with until about 21, until I entered the workforce. And I made some wrong decisions in terms of seeking money instead of anything that I enjoyed. And, and really, that didn't turn out well. And I was extremely unhappy, anxious burnout. I had to quit and take time off. Uh, I won't go through the whole story. The point is, I really saw both ends of the spectrum, almost to extremes, I would say. And from that moment of, of that really the darkest time, the deepest lows, all I wanted was to be happy again. So that did become the goal. And it became extremely stressful. So for, for people who say, yeah, I mean, I understand, but but really, I want to be happy above all else. What do you say to them? I'm so glad you brought this up. And our stories are similar because I did start my career as working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Oh, my gosh. We, uh, we're we we're going for coffee sometime. I ha- yeah. We got to talk more, man. No, no, no. As, as soon as you said that, I was like, all right, note, like, let's make have a, let's have a lunch date. Yes. With whiskey. Yes. Um, the, uh, so here's the thing. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've spent over 17 years working with people suffering from social anxiety disorder, panic attacks. Um, I've worked in three VA hospitals working with combat veterans returning from seeing their friends die and them almost dying themselves and having post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, depression. And then the difficulty, which no one talks about in the news, is the return to civilian life where there aren't chances for, there are not opportunities and chances for heroism, and courageousness when you have to take out the recyclables on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And how do you return back to a life that seems so much less meaningful than life or death? And so if you're, we all go through struggles and I have plenty of stories myself as everyone's trauma is relative. You know, one person losing their, their goldfish and it's their first exposure to death can be comparable to someone else losing their father who dies. If it's, it might or maybe when you're 30 or 40 years old. And so we can't rate and rank people's traumas. When we are experiencing these downward spirals, I think for most people, it makes perfect sense is that let, let me start with trying to be happy. And then I would ask this, which is if you got to this point, this elusive state of happiness, well, what would you do then? What would it look like? And once you start asking a question of, visualizing what would you do differently what would your conversations be like what would you be talking about who would you be approaching what would you do on your free time um if you had uh, a work meeting how would it be different than the funk that you're in now you would start to hear the early harbingers of what people value 
about people's strengths and about people using and not using them. And that's kind of where the action is to actually be happy. We can't just turn a switch or press a button on off to be happy. If we had that, you wouldn't have a $2 billion self-help market. Um, And if we had that, we wouldn't have consultants going into workplaces to try and prove morale. The reason that we have so much science and so many books, and I think there's lots of redundancy, is because we do not have that switch. We evolved as human beings not to be happy, but to pass on our genes, have sex as much as humanly possible, and survive another day. And the only reason that we have happiness from an evolutionary standpoint, which we need to understand what human beings actually are to try to improve ourselves and help other people improve their lives. We have happiness because it attracts people to us. When we're in a happy mood, people people are more likely to want to talk to us, spend time with us, get to know us, and maybe form a relationship with us. And if we understand, though, but trying too hard to be happy, you don't actually make the the headway into creating a life that's actually worth living to be proud of. I think people inherently know that. I mean, I think if you have made happiness the goal, as many people have, I know I have, maybe I still do. I I don't know. It's definitely something I struggle with, but it's almost apparent. Like I'm always reaching and I'll, I'll, I'll say this to my wife. You know, we have a healthy son. We just moved into a beautiful house. Well, it's, I mean, it's a townhouse, but to me, it's beautiful. You know, um, we both have jobs. We have health insurance. Like we are healthy. You know, I mean, really, every day I try to explain to her, we need to take a step back and appreciate things. However, both of us in that moment do and then very quickly go, okay, but... The house is expensive. Our son keeps us up at night. You can find the opposite side of any happiness, I feel like. What I would say is there's a difference between thinking about happiness and making it the goal as you walk through your day. And let me let me give you like a, a concrete example that also offers a skill for, for listeners that I didn't come up with. It, it was derived 1900 years ago by Epictetus, Stoic philosopher um, in, in ancient Rome, which was... You know, if you if you really want to, and you brought up your kids, and I have three daughters as well, is what? And my wife hates this technique, and she's always like, "Why must you always make things so weird and bizarre? Like, <laughs> why can't you just be like our neighbors?" Is um, and I and she was talking about how our kids are. You know, one of our daughters is three, and she's in that whiny, um, basically uh, hostage negotiation phase <laughs> where she will just out will us in terms of how long can you hear me scream and say no and eventually she gives in and I don't Mm -hmm. now one thing I do for handling this is not get into the fights with her is I do what Epictetus talks about which is trying to visualize the worst possible things that could happen in your life and I think about when I put my kids to bed I don't do do this every moment of the day but Mm -hmm. probably like once every two days I will go into my kid's room and whether they're there or not there, but particularly when they go to bed and I will think about them dying and I will imagine what it's like not to have them in my life. Cause this could happen at any given point in time. They could just walk in front of a car and it's not because I'm pessimistic. It's sure. not because I'm the grumpy curmudgeon guy who will steal your kickball. If it goes over my fence, so I'll never give it back to you <laughs> in the neighborhood. It's by doing that by deviating from happiness and thinking about all the things that can go wrong, 
what that does is it makes me the type of father that when they wake up in the morning, I don't take for granted those moments. Uh, you know, I, I have about 20 minutes with them before I go to work in my professorship job. And I treat them as, as valuable as, you know, time with the Dalai Lama of three seconds of shaking his hand or when I meet when I see him in Australia, um, which happened, by the way, never um, <laughs> is is uh, is they're valuable most because I don't know if I'm going to get another one. And so from visualizing about hoping for the best, but bracing for the worst and visualizing all the things go wrong. I appreciate my kids for all their whining and all their hugs and all their complaining and all their times that they tell me that they love me and all the times they tell me they hate me. I want those creatures in my life. And by visualizing all the things can go wrong, I never take a moment for granted. So I'm not trying to be happy, but actually the paradox is I end up more appreciative and experience more joy with my children. Mm. And you can use this technique everywhere in your lives. So you have two books that I want to discuss. You have your most recent one, The Upside of Your Dark Side, and then uh, your previous one, Curious. And one of the things that jumped out to me is it really seems like the constant theme almost is balance. It's It's both sides. It's Again, like I kind of said, being truly human and then embracing that. And that's kind of what you're talking about here. You can utilize that other side, the, the other side of happiness almost, to consequently increase happiness. That's right. That's, and not balance as the straw man balance, right? Because if you look at um, you know, books in the 80s till now about you know, women's difficulty in the workplace, which you know, I'm raising three daughters, so I am hypersensitive to these issues um, about, you know, the idea of, of, you know, in the United States, we are one of the worst countries in terms of parental leaves and forget fathers taking a leave of absence from work, which only makes the imbalance harder for women. The, the straw man is I want to have equal amount of attention and, you know, mental capacity for and physical stamina for both work and home and home gets split between if you have kids, the kids, and also being a romantic partner with somebody as well. Um, and that's that's a straw man. That's not when I think about balance. I, and people talk about balance. They often talk like it's static. I think of like a surfer riding a wave as balance. You know, which is there is no there is no equalness. It's basically even if you watch professional surfers riding a wave, as soon as they go off the crest. Sometimes they'll fall because they don't know this exact speed to which it's going to break. They don't know how much mist is going to be in the air. They don't know the curvature that they need to take exactly the degree to match um, the you know the size of the wave and then the the force of the wave towards the shore. And balance is being able to dynamically respond moment to moment to the demands of the situation. And there is it's never equal because homeostasis doesn't work that way. And if you wanted to, if you wanted to be a, a better runner in terms of getting down to a seven minute mile, or if you wanted to build a 17 inch bicep, your body does not want to change. Balance isn't about um, having an equal number of reps and sets when you go into the gym or a certain amount of time. It's can you push your body beyond what it's capable of just on the edge such that the tissues are forced to rip open a tiny bit, microscopic tears that when you rest, 
you will actually grow and become stronger, faster, and more agile. It only comes from the ripping, not from doing what you're capable of. And again, that's all deviating from this notion of being positive and happy and joyous and optimistic for the end goal of growing. I was just okay, you, and you just said for the end goal of growing. And I was going to say, you know, forgive me if this sounds repetitive or obvious, but really what I gained from that, and it makes a lot of sense, is, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so just say this part I agree with, this I don't. But I try to make things succinct at the end is, okay, if the end goal, and I don't even want to say goal, but happiness is great. We all would like to have it in some fashion. The way we get there is through challenge and growth and doing new things that make us feel better and accomplished and then happy. In order to grow, we have to stress ourselves. But in order to stress ourselves properly, uh, we need to do it through utilizing balance that brings us to that point of growth and no further. I agree with everything you're saying. The um, and it might be a semantic game, and uh, but uh, you know this is I think no, that's good. good for people. Yeah, is I don't think of happiness as the only end game. And I'll give Martin Luther King as an example. You don't see a picture. There are no, there's no video footage or actually biographical information with him hugging babies, tickling them, laughing hysterically goofing off being playful he was a pretty somber guy if he, if you were if you know if i as a psychologist was around when martin luther king was alive he'd probably end up and assessed him in an interview he'd probably end up being like perfectly average or below average in happiness now but in terms of meaning and purpose in life the guy was off the charts i mean he is our exemplar of meaning and purpose in life and so they're not the same thing if you were to ask if you were if i was to go in there as a happiness consultant Back in the past, well, let's let's forget the butterfly effect for a moment here. And I played with Martin Luther King to make him happier. I probably would have screwed him up, and I probably would have screwed up the course of history, and not in a good way. Maybe Martin Luther King would have survived, but we would not have the civil rights wins that we had because him getting in touch with the struggles of humanity, not being able to appreciate the perspectives of diversity, not from a politically correct sense, because from people that have gone through suffering, they offer new insights at the table that people that had privilege do not understand, and thus it leads to better innovation, better companionship, um, better communities, and a better society, and especially if you care about the United States as an entire country. And this is what Martin Luther King was fighting for under the guise of, let's give rights to people that aren't white. He had profound meaning, he had a path, and his life was strife with anxiety, with, with guilt, with righteous indignation, and every once in a while, some very intense positive emotions from the wins or the anticipation of a win. And, but he was not what I would describe as being happy. So I would want to separate that a lot of these things we do is not just to be happy, but to live a legacy. And to live a life such that on this short term on this planet, in the grand scheme of things, I would like to move the world a little bit closer to being a better, more compassionate place. And someone else might have a different value than, than mine is. Hmm. The thing that I've always gone back to, and I'm hoping maybe you can clarify it. I mean, this is a big belief for me, is that even if you were to be able to get inside Martin Luther King Jr.'s head and say, look, you know... You don't seem that happy. You're not smiling all the time, etc. But you do. You have this mission. He would say, "Yeah, because that's what makes me happy." 
So I always wonder, is that, though, in the end, still the goal, even though we go after it different ways and experience it differently? No, no, no. Point taken. And you know what? I'm just going to say agreed because um, we do have different variants of how we experience this. The way you experience it with the mission. So think of think of the exemplars, right? You know, you got Gandhi, you have Marie Curie, you have Amelia Earhart, you have um, Mother Teresa. These are people that would probably say the same thing. Exactly what you're saying. Like, this brings me satisfaction. Um, A cognitive thumbs up that this is how I want to live my life. And I'll agree with that. But it doesn't look like the way we talk about happiness in the United States. Okay. And I think there's appreciation of um, let's not ask people in the airline industry to put that emotional labor of being that forced smile if – they don't feel like smiling and mm. they can just what you know what I would ask for is that they can just learn perspective taking of the seats are now smaller and I've got two morbidly obese people on both sides of me that they can look at me and say, oh, I'm so United is so glad to have you on our flight. No, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I have no interest. I don't care about United. I know United doesn't care about me. We have no relationship. We've never emailed or text. We never will. Um, what I'd like you to do is tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, can I talk to you for a second? Listen, you look really uncomfortable. We have a seat in the back. Like um, That's open to you if you want it. With no smile. With just empathy and perspective taking. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I'm arguing for is that level of agility as opposed to let's push for positivity. Let's take a break for a minute from our amazing sponsor, Northern Catch. Northern Catch is the delicious new seafood subscription service connecting you with the pristine waters of Alaska by providing you with sustainable, wild Alaskan seafood delivered to your door. So, why get great seafood delivered straight to you? Well, first, in addition to being incredibly delicious, the health benefits of eating Alaska seafood are numerous. Seafood, especially Alaska salmon, contains an abundance of omega-3 fatty acids, which aid in healthy brain function and vision while reducing inflammation and heart disease. One of the reasons you should get a subscription from Northern Catch is because you know it's coming straight from Alaska from people who know what they're doing, and it is wild caught. None of this farmed salmon that has to get artificially dyed just to actually look like salmon. This is the real stuff. Northern Catch was started by two guys. You probably heard me interview one in a previous episode. And they were previously commercial fishermen. They wanted to bring Alaskan seafood to the country because it's sustainable. It's done in a way where they don't threaten the fish population. They don't threaten the seafood life. They maintain a balance while also catching enough to bring you wild Alaskan caught seafood. All right. So check this out, smart people, podcasters. Here's what you do. Head on over to northerncatch.fish. Yes, that's dot fish. You donate $10 to the Alaskan Marine Conservation Council and you receive a captain's card that gets you a $50 discount on the first month of your Alaskan seafood subscription. So head over to northerncatch.fish, sign up, get a $50 discount, start getting amazing Alaskan seafood straight to your door. Now let's get back to the show. And I love that because that's a message that I need to hear. I'm sure others need to hear. Maybe perhaps instead of you know, searching for happiness, it's more fulfillment. And because that I think might have a a deeper meaning almost. Um, So if we were to go that route, what are and I know you talk about this 
in you know the upside of your dark side. One of the things is people don't know what they want or what might make them happy or fulfilled. What are some instructions almost for those of us listening, aside from buy your book, obviously, um, that we can work towards and figure it out? Because I've done career coaching in the past. It's something that I'm extremely passionate about given the struggles I've had. And the number one thing is clarifying what people want. Why is that so hard? And how would you recommend going about figuring it out? It's a great question. I mean, you know, the amount of podcasts I listen to on different topics, I mean, I just listened to one on the history of money and how uh, exposure to, to money actually affects our brains, the nucleus accumbens in a way where, which is where like the, one of the, the rich reward centers of the brain in the same way for men as it does to beautiful naked bodies. And then you, you ask to like, well, what's, what would I do with this information? And the response is always be aware of money has this effect on you. So, but there's something to be said. It, it always starts with, you need to be aware of what's your philosophy of life now, actually. And that's a, that's a loaded word, which people are like, listen, 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 I don't have time for a philosophy of life. So the, the, uh, the better way of thinking about this in the modern world is what are the values and goals that are so important to you that you will not let other ones get in the way? Because that's the nucleus of who you are. What, is the, what are the values and goals that if someone didn't know them about you, they would, you would say, we hang out a lot, we talk a lot, but they don't know me, right? For me, it's like one of them is putting my personal signature on my work, which means that if someone zigs, I often zag because I kind of just see like, well, if everyone's going in this direction, life's just too complicated. Human beings are too sophisticated. There must be missing something. And I go the other direction. And I also have a certain personality style growing up in, in New York City of growing up in the, the punk rock revolution in a, you know, as a 13 to 15 year old that's affected my work, despite that I am supposedly a white collar scientist. You definitely um, love the Beastie Boys. I love the Beastie Boys. Absolutely. I love Fugazi. You know, <laughs> you know, I love, you know, I love, you know, I grew up on Black Sabbath when I was, uh, when I was like a seven year old. I mean, <laughs> no question about Rage Against the Machine. Oh, yeah. Um, and this affects my views now, even though I'm supposed to be, you know, in a tweed jacket with the elbows, with the elbow pads, right? Um, and people get surprised by that. That's a core value. People, you need, to, people need to know what you stand for, you know, and, and it can't just be your kids and your romantic partner. It can't just be, um, I love doing my best. It's got to be more personalized than that or else you can't make headway into that. You're not, you should not be interchangeable with every human being that's on the planet for doing this. Um, but a more important life hack strategy tactic that I would give is you need to know what your emotional biases are. And so if I was to ask, I mean, just, just think of, just think of like a few basic emotions that everybody knows, right? Anger, anxiety, guilt, embarrassment, boredom, sadness. And I could ask, and I, I ask this rhetorically to the people listening of those negative in quote emotions, which one are you the least comfortable experiencing? Which one are you? Will you spend the most energy to avoid experiencing? Which one do you have the most hard time understanding? Which is the most difficult to express to other people? Which one do you have the hardest time when someone else is experiencing it when they share it to you? And as you learn your biases, you start to realize 
that there are obstacles inside your head that prevent you from making traction towards meaningful goals. But you can only know them if you know what your biases are. And, and one of the things of going around the world, talking about this book, giving workshops to organizations about this, the content in this book, is people, men and women, um, the emotion that people have the most biases towards ends up being anger. And that surprised me. I thought really? it would be, I thought it'd be embarrassment or I thought it would be fear. And it ends up people freak out over anger. Wow. Go into that a little further. So they, as in they don't like feeling it or? In so many ways. I remember that this one woman who um, is in government intelligence and just think about, I can't name it. Sure. You can take guesses, sure. obviously, government intelligence, <laughs> um, who's in charge of some very difficult stuff. They help protect our country, and thankfully this stuff does not get in the news because we shouldn't know what they're doing. Right. Um, she's she's protecting the, the borders and terrorists, from, protecting us from terrorists, and she's just like, I never – I cannot imagine that anger is ever valuable in any situation. Now, that's a strong statement, and yeah. we went back and forth on this. And I'm not like, you know, I'm, I'm not doing a sermon, so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to force ideas on anybody. I'm asking people to think, but I was just like, I was just trying to persuade her with science and with stories and with information of, you know, what happens if you, if you never allow yourself to feel the indignation that someone is violating your goals and creating barriers and showing you disrespect and you never express that anger towards someone. And she's like, I can, I don't see any value. I can just be kind. I'm like, well, what if they're mean to you seven days in a row <laughs> and it's your superiors and, um, and people are laughing and they're actually avoiding you because that you're being disrespected. Now there's never a place for anger. Well, here, so here's my point about knowing the bias. She has just reduced her psychological Swiss army knife by a couple of tools compared to those people that are comfortable every once in a while allowing themselves to show other people that, listen, that's crap. You cannot talk to me that way. You will not talk to me that way in front of other people. You can focus on my ideas, but you will not attack me as a person. I will not accept that. And when you do it sporadically, not regularly, people really listen. They're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I've never seen her yeah. or him get angry like that. This must be matter. Okay, bookmark, noted, underlined, italicized. I will not talk about X about that person. And I'm going to be careful about focusing on the ideas and not the ad hominem and attacking her. And it has power. Don't give up your superpowers because they feel uncomfortable. So I can understand that about anger because that's not my trigger or that's not what I'm uncomfortable with. I mean, growing up, you know, in a, a totally male driven, I mean, you know, brother and, and I had a bunch of friends. I would played sports, you know, lots of fights and, you know, all that stuff. And college lived with seven guys. You have to be able to hold your own a little bit. And sometimes that comes from being angry. Um, I'd say I'm, I had the least out of most people I knew, but, but I'm comfortable with it. But when we understand them and let's take something else other than anger, we don't need to name it. How, how does understanding our bias there help us 
with how to deal with it. So, so for me, for example, there are, I, I try to avoid anxieties, uh, anxiety in general, given my previous experience being anxious and having panic attacks and whatnot. I see that if I'm walking into a lion's den, it's okay to be anxious because it gives me some other powers or whatever. But aside from that, I hate the feeling. Even knowing that, how does that help me? A, a tremendous amount. Before you write, this is the great difficulty of being a, a creator. And, and everyone who writes a blog post, everyone who tries to persuade someone to go to one restaurant and not another, um, anyone that's trying to um, seduce someone to either have a sexual experience or a romantic relationship, everyone who creates a, a food dish that's not from exactly from a recipe, you're a creator. And the, the great difficulty of being a creator or an artist is that we want to hide from potential criticism and the anxiety that will be shown to be a fraud will be shown to that to suck will we it'll be clear that we are not as good as we hope or think we are and if you fear if you get anxious about being anxious and try to avoid that experience you avoid the opportunities for courage because courage requires you it's hard to think of an example where someone was courageous and did not allow themselves to be vulnerable. I mean, in some ways, I mean, Brene Brown has her definition of courage is the willingness to show up and be seen in our lives. And that's hard to do. It's real. I mean, just, just think, just think, uh, or every, every person who's listening to think of how often do you really make eye contact with someone over the course of a conversation. And one of the reasons that when we do make eye contact, it's so intimate and it's so powerful yeah. is because it's not that we see them. It's because we have just allowed ourselves to be seen and the possibility that they know what I'm thinking and they know my insecurities and they know my fears and they know, you know, that I don't know if I am as smart as the person that's talking to me. I, I'm trying to impress them and, and they can see that and it must be icky for them. And it's really tough to allow ourselves to be seen, but it's, that is that obstacle of being seen is the path to developing intimacy with other people. And if your bias is you want to avoid anxiety, you kind of shut down that valve a lot. Hmm. I, I okay. I I really appreciate that. And and for the listeners, you know, thanks for kind of going down that that rabbit hole a little bit because I think that um, you know what what you're saying is essentially I like the the analogy of the Swiss Army knife. Like each of our emotions, we have them through evolution to to almost provide substance and growth in certain experiences. And if we shut them down, we're limiting that. So. I love that. And and let's talk about how that is. Is that the main kind of topic of the upside of your dark side is how to embrace things other than the bright and cheery? I mean, if you were to put the entire book in a, in a soundbite, it's the ability to be whole and have access to all the different sides of your personality and all the different behaviors and strategies that those sides of your personality bring. If you, have, if you have access and comfort about that whole features, the whole nature of your personality, you are more effective at navigating 
the difficulties, the stresses, and the challenges of everyday life, obnoxious, ungrateful, violent, and annoying people that you can't control, and plenty of situations and events that you can't control. And you are more effective because you bring more tools into the situation. So when you get feedback that being dominant isn't working, you can switch to the submissive side of your personality, a little bit more submissive, and hold back. Maybe you should listen more. You might not make people laugh as much, which you really value. You might not be as entertaining and interesting enough because you're asking more questions than listening. But you're finding out what's interesting about other people. And maybe for the person you're speaking to, that's what's going to be most persuasive and valuable to them. And you could switch off between being dominant and being more submissive to being warm. And then maybe being warm and comforting and empathetic and compassionate might work as a leader for some people, and some people really want to be told what to do, and they want like a cold, difficult, extreme response. Like if someone sucks, they want to be told, listen, that sucked. You can do better. Like I'm pissed because that's the third time now that we've had this conversation, and they want to hear that feedback. And being agile and being able to use all those different sides of your personality trumps a focus on trying to be positive, optimistic, kind, and compassionate, which is what many bo- many books and many motivational speakers focus on one single topic. Like this is the act, this is the juice. Compassion is the juice. Empathy is the juice. Be having positive emotions juice. And we're saying no. It's you need it all. It just depends which situation, what person are you talking to, in what dose, and how much should you be throwing out there. And that's where you're putting your own signature on this space comes in as you mentioned earlier yeah well i should probably say i shouldn't take ownership of this of this is really calling together 80 years of research and thinking in psychology sure and behavioral economics sure and actually while we're on that subject because i found that statement really interesting when you were talking about you know the happiness space if you will you believe there's a lot of redundancy and then you talked about being a creator the anxiety that comes along with what will people see in me? And and I know a lot of people listening are creators. I think it's a, I mean, I think most people are, they just don't know it. John and I, the guy that uh, produces this podcast with me, he, uh, we did a, a promo video a long time ago and we each got to say one quote that the, the podcast showed us in the past, you know, three, five years, whatever it was at the time. And mine was, I didn't know I was creative until I started doing this. And so one of the things I feel, there's creativity in everyone. It's just how we choose to express it. What I want to ask you on that is, how do you deal with something as a creative uh, in this, you know, in any space where you believe there's already people doing it, there's already people that are smarter than me, more accomplished than me, better than me doing it, and I'm going to subject myself to opinions of people who, uh, you know, who I might not like. I know that's three things, so we can break it down if you want. No, I, 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 you, you asked really good questions. I mean, I, I love this whole topic that you're bringing up here. I, I think the – so one is there's tons – there's a ton of anxiety of being a creator. And, and there's a ton of anxiety. I mean, if you think about, you know, how do you make people creative? And I, and I do workshops on this. I've, I've been to workshops on this. Um People miss the most important first step. And the first step is you have to want to be creative. And and some people say it, but when you actually probe, you realize, no, nah, that's just like 
They want to be seen as someone who's creative, but they don't want to do creative work because Hugh McClaude has this great um, line, which I'm, I'm going to quote from him because I think it, it makes a good, nice conversation where, and it's not binary, but let's just play with this for now, which is you have two choices to make to be a sheep or to be a wolf and being a creative and a sheep is basically following the map of what's, what is, what is the themes that makes a book make the New York Times bestseller list for you? You know, what is the theme that makes a podcast on, you know, Apple's elusive top 10 podcast list? And you just kind of follow the paint by numbers program. The problem with being a sheep is it's boring. You are, you are, you are accepting a life of boredom is it's, it's not your world. It's not your personal stamp. I mean, you're just, you're tr the metric is I want to be popular and make a lot of money. And you have to really think of is that, and I don't want to be, I don't want to stand out from the crowd. And if that's your thing, fine, but that's just choose carefully. If you want to be the wolf, which is, I want to do things a different way. I want to. I have a unique lens from everyone does from their own personal history. You have your own stories that nobody can ever take. Nobody can use. Nobody can steal that can enliven your talks, enliven your conversations, enliven your writing, enliven your workshops, well, you know, your music, whatever it is, your medium. But to be the sheep, it can be lonely because no one understands your mind. No one understands your story the way you do for doing it that way. And part of being deciding, making the decision to be creative is really is really to, to choose the wolf route. And it's it's lonely to be creative. And I think one of the ways of dealing with that loneliness is what you did and what I did with this book, which is the, the to forget about the myth of the lone genius and realize that collaboration and leveraging your strengths with someone else's strengths makes better work. You get you share the spotlight. You cut the um, the profits in half. Um, you have tons of fights when you're when you're co-author, as I experienced in Nicaragua when we were writing. Says uh, Todd, I really like this chapter, but I think we should cut the whole thing, despite the four the three months you've been working on it. <laughs> um, you have to have that difficult conversation, but the work is so much better, and I will never go back to doing things solo, and because that's part of making the choice of being creative. The work is more creative with two of the creative juices that flare, the chemicals that appear that I didn't even know existed, even though we've talked hundreds, if not thousands of times before. So things spark and get produced, like little you know, little children get created for, for our work that's just better than anything I could have come up with on my own. And that's one of the ways of handling the careful decision to be the sheep, the, the wolf instead of the sheep. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smart people. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. lynda.com is for the problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Some of the courses I recommend are growth hacking fundamentals, getting things done, and bootstrapping your business. I've been taking lynda.com's course on growth hacking fundamentals, and I absolutely love it. The videos are amazing. 
The instructors are amazing, and I am learning a ton. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can download tutorials and watch them on the go, including access on your iOS or Android device. And best of all, you get to learn at your own pace. Courses are structured so you can watch them from start to finish or consume them in bite-sized pieces. So listen up. Here's what you need to do. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one low flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, we want you to visit lynda.com slash smart people and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. And now back to the show. Okay. So much there. I, all right. First of all, the listeners know this. I'd say once every dozen episodes or so, I, I kind of verbally say, because I just wear my emotions on my sleeve, I go, oh, I, I got goosebumps there. But I got goosebumps that lasted for like five minutes. <laughs> I also tried to furiously take notes so I could cover different things that you talked about. So here goes. Okay, first, the sheep aspect. My first question is, and and you can make it kind of as concise as you want, I deal with this a lot because our podcast is unique in the sense that there really aren't that many that I see that interview people from all areas, industries, etc., solely for the purpose of learning from them that don't market themselves like we don't we do a terrible job at marketing straight up authentic i mean we do now make money because of sponsorships but it was a byproduct it was crazy luck it's probably the worst run business if you look at it that way there is okay um and 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 you know we put a lot of time into this and it's frustrating because i see people come in you know put up like the equivalent of reality tv podcasts or or let's take up my my the one example entrepreneurship like if I were to go back to 2010 and want to make money on podcasting, I just title it how to start a business. And you were almost guaranteed to like be on the top 10 back then because I don't know, it's just the easy way to go. And sometimes I get frustrated by there's other people making more money and you know, my time isn't valued as much and whatever. And so that, that translates to a number of different areas. And I just wonder what you tell that person who's going, you know what, I'm a painter or I'm a writer or I'm a film producer or whatever. And I could either do what I know will sell or I can do what feels right and most likely be less successful. <laughs> Again, we're going into really amazing fun territory here. <laughs> um, you know, when you, when you, when you mention this, I, the first person that comes to mind is, um, Robert Rodriguez, the film director, right? And and his and his what was his first? El Mariachi was his first movie that he made for seven thousand dollars, and now he's you know one of the best filmmakers alive, in my personal opinion. Dust to Dawn, Spy Kids. I mean, not that I think that's the best movie ever, but every movie, uh, Sin City, which is one of the best movies. All your listeners should see that if they haven't seen that yet. Sin City Two is coming out, um, and he went the route to challenge everything that was done about, about directing and what you're allowed to do. In fact, he's not in the director's guild because they wouldn't allow him because he, he refused to follow the rules. I'll, just, I'll give you one kind of concrete example, which I love about Roberto Rodriguez um, as a comic book fan is, uh, or a superhero fan is um, when he made Sin City, it was based on a, a very graphic comic book novel. 
and the in the directors guild which is the only and they, it really is like a, like almost like a union so you you can't hire actors if you're not in this guild it's um was that you can't have two directors and the reason is because the, the reason behind it is that if if someone funded you for your film, they could say, well, in return, you must put me as a co-director. So it protects young filmmakers. But here's Roberto Rodriguez. It's like, I have this graphic comic book I love. I want to work with him. How could I possibly not include him as a director? And they said, if you do that, you're out of the guild. He's like, well, then I'm out of the guild. And then as soon as he did that, Bruce Willis and all these other actors, like, oh, my God, I want to work with this guy. Like, he challenged the guild. Like, that's just, like, amazing. So he chose the path of the wolf. It's lonely, and the irony is, right, as soon as that became public, he became the most popular guy in the room that happened there. So my, my recommendation, and, and I say this with the caveat of, you know, if finances are necessary for your survival and you're taking care of your family, listen, do not, don't even think about the word selling out. Think of it as a value-based decision. Forget the word sell should just disappear. The word success should disappear because it has too much baggage that's attached to it. Sometimes you have competing values, and if you're, one of the values is caring for your family, that's front and center. Nothing you can do about that. But when it comes to the work, I don't think if you want to be a creative that you should not compromise because it's, if that authenticity hits the small tribe of 10 people that come to that art gallery, and if it's – they will decide – whether they take pictures with their iPhones and post it on social media and then 10 more people see it and then 10 more people see it. And it's not about affecting the culture because there is no culture anymore. What single culture there's, there's niches and you have to figure out what your niche is. Like, like my niche is this very sarcastic, playful group of people that want to know the best science available. I don't write like a scientist. I always, almost always have a story of my kids when I talk and write, talk about the science, I am profanity laden. I have tons of references to obscure movies and horror movies and music. And, and that's not what scientists are supposed to do. But that's my, I'm like a punk rock rocker who does not know how to play a musical instrument who happens to be a scientist. And that is not attractive to a lot of people in my community of scientists. But in the world, there's a niche for me of people that are left of center who want to know What's the quickest way I can, I can, I can sift through all of this boring, you know, academic work and someone that was willing to make it interesting. That's my niche. And, and I often don't get invited to give talks at, at conferences that you're not one of us anymore. You're, you're like doing some weird blogosphere stuff and you're, and you use sound bites that like, you don't appreciate the nuances of the science. I'm like, cause people don't care about you know, whether it ends up being that the uh, that the sample sizes are equal. So I use this very complex statistical analysis to, to deal. They don't care about that. They want to know, based on two years of work with romantic couples, what did you discover about why it's important to appreciate your partner's strengths and how, how can you harness them? That's what they want to know. They don't care about the statistical analyses. Um, and then if, you know, if you're, and if you're, an artist or a film director, when you put your personal stamp, that's what makes, that's what, that just draws people in. It's like, wow, I can't, if you gave me ketamine in a sensory deprivation tank for three and a half years, I would never come up with the ideas of a Philip Dick book, right? I mean, and I read that and I'm just like, this was a guy, like in the beginning of his career, he wasn't, you know, he, 
There was no Blade Runner in the 60s. That didn't come out until the 80s when all of a sudden Harrison Ford made Philip Dick popular. But if you read his books, he's got the – I forgot the title of the book, but I think it's Martian Time Slip. He's got like like, like 85 books. But he has a book about some some planet in the future where essentially schizophrenia – might yes might be a mental illness but also might be some other sensory modality that evolution has not made common in the gene pool but some people are accessing senses that are that other that the majority of the human species has not accessed yet and right now it's a little bit non-fine-tuned and about 200 to 2000 generations from now we're going to have some other senses beside the five that we have and he wrote a book about this in the 60s and it's just like another way of thinking about mental illness it's just like wow the hell did you come up with this stuff we're doing that and, and so that's it took time and now at least to me he's an he is the icon of science fiction that's that's a creepy thought just because my wife used to work with schizophrenics and she told me stories about you know what that meant like they they'd be in a room and they the the person would start talking about the the eye in the ceiling that's watching them and everything so to think about the fact that what if that eye actually is there and we're the crazy ones right that, that is oh that's nuts i i still going back to the the statement i still have some things first of all i just want to touch on your thing that you said work with someone else that is that has been life changing for me and we interviewed a guy, his name's Josh Shank. It's episode 155. He wrote a book called The Power of Two. Yeah, um, I need to read that. Yeah, yeah. it's incredible. Uh, he talks about, you know, like the Beatles, you know, or and he talks really about Lennon and McCartney um, and, and what they created. I mean, just pairs throughout history, even Jobs and... Um, Woz. Woz. Yeah, Wozniak. So anyways, I recommend that and, and uh, just want to highlight that. The other thing is... The listeners have probably heard about this to some degree. I, I, I've been, it's really been stuck in my craw since it happened. But are you familiar with the author um, Tucker Max? Yes. Okay. Yes. So um, he, uh, his, his folks reached out and, and asked if we wanted him on the show. And I don't necessarily respect his work, but, you know, I try to get a bunch of different perspectives. So we had him on. Long story short, um, he hung up on me after 18 minutes and I was truly trying to understand his perspective because I think see things differently. And the reason why this relates to what you're saying is I believe he um, created these books that millions of people bought that added no value to the world and actually took value away. He was playing on other people's weaknesses. So women he exploited oftentimes or he was just telling stories of stuff we all thought about but realized it's too dumb to do. He did it and then wrote it down. That's how I feel. But yeah. he got furious and he was like, look, millions of people bought my books. This is entertainment and I am entertaining the masses. If you don't understand that, you're crazy. And the value is there proven by the amount of people that bought it. And what I said, what I said or was thinking, I don't know, is like, just because people bought it doesn't mean it's valuable. You know, like, you know, a, a drug dealer sells stuff that people buy. It's not valuable. Jersey um, Shore. I mean, that was the most <laughs> popular show on television for however many years. Yeah. And he literally said, that's effing stupid. Like, I said something about, you know, sometimes I create too altruistically, I, I feel, you know, like, 
almost too authentically and don't look at the business aspect enough. And, and he said like, that's effing stupid. Like you shouldn't do that, blah, blah. And so I just feel like what you were saying hits home about two things, right? Like if you need the money, you can create for that purpose. It's still creating and you'll work towards your goal. And that's one aspect, but also like, you know, there's more to it than just how many people will read it, watch it, listen to it, etc. And I don't feel like I, I don't think everyone feels that way, as as um proven by my very short interview with Tucker Max. Well, the first thing I think of is, I mean, and this makes me want to even hang hang out with you even more. <laughs> is uh, it's I mean, I just have pride of regardless of how you feel about Tucker Max is you took a stand that gets you friction. Here's a best-selling author who has quote unquote, some power in this industry. And you did not back down and placate, which I think most journalists, writers, thinkers um, do just because like, we want to make sure that they come back and we want to <laughs> make sure that we, you know, that they're satisfied. And I just think that's just like, that, that's, that's, that's great. That's what, that's what bravery is. Bra bravery is not just, um, you know, an ENT worker, you know, going into the, the fire of district nine in DC and, and, and picking someone who, um, picking someone off the ground, even though the shots are still being fired. Bravery is what you just did with, with Tucker Max. I mean, is is willing to say like, listen, I think this is, um, I care about women's well being and work that, directly explicitly uh negates them as being a, as human as anyone else is has a big problem to me i mean that's like kudos to i mean kudos to you i mean that's that's awesome well i appreciate that and i have to say i really do have to give credit actually to the listeners because i think early on in my interviewing chops i was more appeasing and i still am i'm working on it um, but th we've got a number of emails like, hey, try to create some tension. Try to, you know, get honestly. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And, and, and I appreciate that. And he was one like it's only happened a few times, but it'll come out. And I just I say this not to be the one doing a lot of talking, but just that I it's good to see other sides of the spectrum um, and then to hear yours and say, you know what, I, I feel a, a kind of connection and a kinship with that. And for those creating, which, again, I know a lot of our listeners, I know what they do, to really soak that up and, and think about uh, why they're creating what they're creating and what that experience is adding to the world. Well, well let, me, let, let me add um, um, two cents to that, which I think is important. And, and, and I say it because, um, you know, Robert and I um, struggle with this a great deal because um, our book did not sell. I mean, neither one of us, this is not our first book. I mean, each of us has written about five other books. Mm -hmm. um, and when we wrote this, we just, we, we, we actually turned down a number of different publishers to get the right one and had to have enough time to write the exact book that we wanted to. And like many authors, we were like, oh, how did this not sell? I mean, go on Amazon and see these other books that sell that seem so cliche, but they have happiness in the title, the yes. happiness advantage and the, the power of happiness <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, the emotional bandaid, the, the happiness, you know, makeover and, and these books over outside. So like, it's the same stuff we were talking about like 10 years ago. Like how did this not sell? And it was, but the beauty of having the collaboration is we can talk ourselves into a little bit of indifference about things we can't control. And Robert's better than it even than me of, of like, we produce the work that we could best explain these concepts. It's, it's not a soundbite. It's talking about wholeness and 
agility of appreciating each side of your personality for when, for when it's appropriate in depending on the demands of a situation. That's a complicated idea. When you read it, you can kind of and read it over. Um, it's like, oh, wow, this is like really life affirming and a different way of viewing life. But it doesn't work. There's no emoticon for agility for doing it this way. Mm-hmm. And and then we realized, you know, that our metric was completely off. Our metric was not about selling a lot of books. Our metric was influencing a lot of people. And that's very different. Now, that, that means that people could take it out of the library mm-hmm. and email us and say, like, listen, I read your book and I realized, you know what? It's okay to be angry with my kids every once in a while because they need some level of structure in their lives because they don't know how to get through life. Like part of my job as a parent is to teach them right from wrong. And sometimes if they if they do the wrong thing seven, eight, ten times, you're going to get frustrated. And when they hear the change in your voice in terms of volume and in terms of um, just – um, emotional disarray, uh, emotional distress. That could have, that could be the change maker for them. And and if you ask kids who are over the age of seven, do they want some structure in their lives? Just a little bit, so that they know a little bit of what not to do. And a seven to ten year old will tell you, yeah, like I I don't want to do the wrong thing. Like they have the great at heart. They just their job is to push the buttons to figure out what can I get away with. Mm-hmm. And so anger has its use of expression of anger. And we've gotten emails from parents that do that. And, and if they share the book with their friends and trade it and then their friends get it from the library, I don't get upset about that. I just want the ideas to the masses. And so the metric is different, though. That means that's not has no influence on my bank account. Sure. It, it does have an influence on my ability to – to bring to bring healthy change to the world in some way, and that's and that's the metric. It's just harder to quantify. And so I think as as an artist, and I think this is the conversation over the Tucker Max is that you can't possibly think that's the only metric. It's number <laughs> of books sold. Um, it's it's just like, do you bring more meaning, compassion, love, um, and healthy relationships, and um, and just health to the to the world in general? I mean, yep. it's got to be that's got to be at least a thought. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I'd like to think, and my wife said this. She's she's brilliant. She said he might have just hung up on you because he realized you were right, but does, will never admit it. And that was ten years of his life. Again, like I really don't want to demonize the guy. I, I he is smart. I just like whatever. That is what it is. You know, I, I think the world, given the information overload, I think we're almost going to the least common denominator, and I'm worried about it. That. You know, if I want to learn about happiness, I just go to Amazon and type in happiness and read a book that's that pops up. And it's really tough. Like, and I struggle with that, you know, again, going back to the podcast, if I just title it, get rich right now, it could have nothing to do with it. I bet our, our downloads go up, you know, so have you ever thought about that kind of at least common denominator a little bit? Oh, being in the, in the, the world of the, the science of well-being and happiness all the time. I mean, I, I am constantly and then i apologize for having this emotional reaction but i am constantly disappointed at how many people prey on the the misfortunes the worries the anxieties and the unhappiness in the world by giving people here are the four tips you need to be happy Uh. and not for a second thinking of there's great heterogeneity in a culture and to think that these are going to work across all situations and all people 
and all parts of the of the world is just absurd. I mean, and so it's it's very it's yeah the least common denominator thing is, is something that bothers me tremendously. Well, Todd, I, I really appreciate it, and thank you so much for being on the show. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. As I mentioned, two books that I highly recommend, even though, like I said, I, I haven't read them yet because I wanted to bring a fresh perspective, but they're in my Amazon queue. The Upside of Your Dark Side and Curious. And so I wanted to give you a minute to tell our listeners who I'm sure enjoyed this, you know, where do we learn more about what Todd's putting into the world? Well, I have my, my website's my name, just toddkajan.com, T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H-D-A-N. Um, Twitter, same thing, at Todd Kajdan. And what you'll find there is um, you don't have to give me your email or anything. I give away all of my, my articles for free. You just, there's, there's, just click on, and there's a PDF waiting for you as soon as you, as soon as you get there. And we will link to that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Todd, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I know we went long, but uh, great conversation. Thanks so much. You ask amazing questions. Um, I am more energized than when I started this hour. Ah, I appreciate that. I'll uh, I'll be in touch. I'll shoot you an email. We'll get together soon. Absolutely. Yeah, All right. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Todd Kajdin. You can find his newest book, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Why Being Your Whole Self, Not Just Your Good Self, Drives Success and Fulfillment on Amazon and at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase through Amazon, please don't forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. Any purchase you make through that link comes to no cost to you and gives us a nice little kickback from Amazon. It helps keep the lights on at Smart People Podcast, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're looking for other easy ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. As always, we appreciate that as well. If you're looking to reach out to the show, please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Hope everybody's having a fantastic week. Really can't believe that we're already starting off in November here. As always, you can stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We've got some great interviews coming up. And we will see you all next week.